and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and I'm just going to go ahead and get this out of the way right here at the start. I've been feeling a little ill lately, so if I sound a little low energy or I'm, I'm making even less sense than normal, that's why. But today's episode is great. We got a great guest. So I wanted to make sure we got into this episode with some good energy. So I'm here. I'm bringing it. Today we're talking about daily quests and weekly quests. They're a staple of persistent online games. They give players the opportunity to enjoy repeated content, but is that really what gamers want? To help me dump on developer practices while simultaneously unapologetically engaging with... That's a mouthful. Who wrote this, Jared? (laughs) (laughs) To help me dump on developer practices while simultaneously and unapologetically engaging with them is my good friend, Jared Brunner. Jared. I definitely didn't botch that one, did I? Unapologetic run-on sentences, even. <laughs> We're shameless here. It's, uh, you know, we try to keep it casual. We Anytime... were just talking about that before we started recording. See, I'm sick, so now I have an excuse. I don't normally have an excuse for why I'm this terrible at podcasting, but today I do. <laughs> hey, well, I had, my, my mixer died on me right before we started recording, so I might sound different as well. I don't have any way of knowing until I start editing, so who knows? It's a brand this new podcast. Is, this is going swimmingly today. I was yeah. like, it's the end of 2018. Sounds like a good time to change everything. <laughs> exactly. Now, Jared. Yes. Something that our listeners might not know about me is that in college. You have I, a beard. Well, I do have a beard. You can't see it over the podcast, but I do have a beard. I can hear it. But in college, I took a psych 101 class. So. Oh, yeah. I'm, basi- I'm basically an expert on psychology. Yes. Uh, which is why I had to get a guest on our show who was at least as intelligent as I am. He is a clinical psychologist and author of the books, Working with Video Gamers and Games in Therapy, as well as The Psychology of Zelda, Linking Our World to the Legend of Zelda series. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Anthony Bean. Dr. Bean, welcome to the show. How are you? I like, I like how you snuck a little Link pun into your Legend of Zelda book. Yeah, I know. That was that was great. Um, they fought me on that one, and I said, no, you have to Wait, who, do that. Because who fought you on this? The, the, the publisher. Well, look, you, you, you have no clue like what the, the stupidest, smallest things that people fight. I am sharpening my and, pitchfork right now. We will go down there and set this all straight. <laughs> everybody to the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Bean, welcome to the show. How, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Of course. No, thank you. So much for being here. I'm glad we were able to to get you on the show and make this happen. Now, you are known as the video game doc. What does that mean? Where did that come from? Where did video game doc come from? Is that is that a title that you earned, or is that something you bestowed upon yourself? Where, where, tell me about that. I don't know if bestowed is the right one, but I kind of chose that one about five years ago when I was still in my doctoral program. And I knew I was going to become a psychologist, obviously, at that point, because I'm in a program. And I wanted to engage a little bit more online. And so instead of just being, you know, uh, Anthony Bean, PhD, which is on there as well. But if I do if I do that instead of the at video game doc, then I can get my little blue checkbox thing mm-hmm. on there because then they can say it's me. But honestly, I really don't care enough to, to do that. Um, so it's something that I kind of chose for my my uh, online handle presence, and ever since then, that's just kind of where it's where it's been. It's what's stuck. Now, when did you decide to focus your academic energies on video games or combining 
your interest in psychology with your interest in video games? How did that come about? So I've been a gamer since I have been four, four years old. I think it's the first I can uh, remember of uh, playing on the NES Adventure Island, which sucks. These days, <laughs> shots um, fired. <laughs> shots have been fired, um, but I also have like Rainbow Island and or whatever that one is, and that one's one of my favorites. I used to play that all the there time. There were a lot of I, there were a lot of island games. Now that I think back on it, like a lot of just you know, it's it's a lot of games revolving around islands. I yeah, it's kind of like you know, if we have this own little world and no one's discovered it, it, it must exist, right? Curious where that came from. Were there a lot of like island or movies at the time or book was? Was Treasure Island big in the 80s? I mean, every Battle Royale game has an island now, so ask them. It's coming back. It's coming back. Islands, so hot right now. <laughs> They're fighting for it. <laughs> They're fighting for it. Um, but basically, I've been a gamer all through my life. I played it all through high school, all through college, all through everything. And still to this day, still play games, except i got to be a little bit more choosier because I'm a parent now as well and uh run a business so uh run a couple businesses but we we make things happen and so i started doing uh a little bit more the integration of it is when i was in uh my doctoral program my professors are what you call depth psychology not death but death as a deep um psychologists and they very much believe that technology is destroying the world on lots of levels. And I... They're, they're probably not wrong. Start, they're probably not wrong. They're, they're probably not wrong on some levels. Um, but at the same time, they they were very far to like the right, if that makes sense, versus people who are very far to the left. And I kind of find myself a little bit more leaning left, but more in the middle. And so I would engage in them in in kind of discourse about it in class and we've had some really great talks obviously but overall the big thing that kind of uh, came out of it is i i just noticed that there's not a lot of clinicians out there at the doctoral level that know a lot about video games or in in media in a lot of areas or can talk about these things and without disdain in their voice and so that's when i really just started focusing a lot more of my efforts on on the researching around it, and uh, I really believe that there is a uh, a personality stance that we we have and we choose to play as very specific characters, um, and that kind of tells us a little bit more about us. And that was actually my dissertation of uh, about nineteen thousand video gamers, and which led to the book um, of working with video gamers and games and therapies for uh, clinicians to to kind of use and, and get a little bit more information on how how do we work with this population because unless you're a gamer I really feel like you don't really know what you're gonna you're, what you're doing you have this outside perspective we're like oh my god we have this addiction thing that's coming out oh my god we have this thing coming out I don't understand well my kids playing fortnite I don't understand why you're playing this and this book is meant to really hone in on the the idea of creating a, a what we call an ethos or a ground area to for clinicians to kind of jump off of and have that conversation with their video game clients and be like what about this is really drawing you and why is this so important so that's that's kind of where it all comes from now what does your work look like now like what do you do as a clinical psychologist working with video games today 
Are you, you know, are you looking at data? Are you running tests? I jokingly said I, I took Psych 101 in, in college. I, I literally have no idea. I, n- I know nothing about how. Yeah, Steve, like, tell but, us about the books that you wrote. <laughs> um, Hashtag if, uh, if you if you uh, <laughs> if you ring a bell, a dog's mouth salivates. I can tell you that. <laughs> That's Pavlov. There you go. Nailed it. That's all you need to know. So, so for you, what does the work look like as a clinical psychologist today? So for me, I am what you kind of call a hybrid. So I am a, I'm a bit of a researcher. I am a writer and I am a practitioner. And usually in psychology, when you get your doctor, you go one of those three ways. You either become a, a full-time uh, practitioner, um, a full-time researcher, or you kind of become a professor. If that's something. And so I'm kind of traversing all of those at once, which is exhausting at days. Um, but class has just ended, so we're, we're fine for like three weeks. It's great. <laughs> and so basically my day kind of looks a little bit more of a psychological assessment, uh, working therapeutically with video gamers, and, and that's really my area. And pretty much about 30 clients I see a week. Is that, that, is that probably one-on-one six. sessions with clients, like you're working with them and video games? Yeah, uh, with, with them and why they're playing certain games. So sometimes, like uh, one of my sessions this morning, is with an eight-year-old, and we we do a puzzle of of Legend of Zelda and talk about why was Link so powerful in this, and how do you get to that point in your life, and why is this so important to understand from a psychological perspective? And so that's that's kind of what I do is I engage the gamer within them to promote change instead of looking at it as a a negative variable that they are what do you call it? a negative variable to be taken away. I I just think that boundaries are not there and if we put enough boundaries in place and bring an understanding to the types of games and the play players we play as that we can promote the internal change and a whole bunch of other things that are great for great for kids do you think that from outside the video game sphere video games get a bad rap do you think they're mischaracterized or do you think that there's like a certain element of truth when fox news let's say uh, says like, oh, you're gonna really take that. <laughs> it's it's, it's low hanging fruit. That's what we do on this podcast. We're not. <laughs> we're, we're we're gonna take the shit of the <laughs> We're gonna pull it out and we're gonna make more shit out. Exactly. Of it. Then we're gonna give it to you and tell you to tell us this doesn't smell like. Did shit. you read that? You must have been reading the about us page on our website. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was actually just watching Rick and Morty earlier. So, but do you do you think video games get mischaracterized often, or do you think that there's some truth when when people on the outside look in and say like, oh, it's like people are getting addicted to these things, or it's causing people to be violent? Where where do you stand? I, I guess in in um, regards to those the, arguments. So the, the violence one right there. Let's start with that one. That one right there is completely false in my opinion. There is no research, and I'm going to caveat this, good research, longitudinal, ones that just don't look at a, a small little uh, percentage or just cherry pick the, the data or the elements that they want to look at and not pay attention to everything else. All of that, all of the good research out there shows that there is not a violent tendency. There's a, a what we call an aggressive tendency, which lasts about five, five to eight minutes afterwards and then dissipates so aggression does not equate to violence though because the violence means that there's an action aggression just means you can be a little pissed off and you know there's many things during the day that piss everyone off so that that one doesn't really ring true i think for 
for anyone and anyone who takes that stance I think is usually misinformed and probably very opinionated and close-minded now for the addiction one I think it is very possible that someone can be addicted to games now the question is how prevalent is it is it as prevalent as everyone's saying it is absolutely not there is no possibility it is as prevalent as everyone is saying it is that would mean that uh, almost about 50% of all gamers worldwide are what we consider to be addicted. I haven't, in my five years, I have not met any gamer that I've worked with, and I've worked with hundreds of them at this time, that I would classify as addicted. I would classify as they're using it as a coping mechanism for anxiety or depression or something else along those lines to make them feel better. One of the, the kids, uh, as another example, um, this after afternoon, I see him every week, and he just doesn't have a great relationship with his dad because his dad is very close-minded, just kind of like, video games are bad, he's got to get off of that stuff, that's going to rot his brain, blah, this, blah, that. And the mom's like, let the kid be a kid. Um, hmm. And so he's feeling super depressed because he doesn't relate to his dad. And it's like, hello, here's your here's your depression thing. And the kid's like, yeah, I know I'm depressed. I know it's because I'm, I'm this, but I, I don't know what to do with change. And so... By playing video games, by playing Fortnite, I feel accomplished. I feel closer to something. I feel more powerful. That is what I think we're not talking about. The current classification of the ICD-11, which comes out in a year or two now, pretty much bastardizes the, the entire idea of video gaming. The criteria is so loosely defined that a lot of people and a lot of gamers could fit into it. And it really just, just kind of looks like they took the substance abuse criteria and moved it on to, and just switched it out with video gaming. They're like, look, we created a diagnosis. But they created it off of really poor research and not uh, understanding the ethos of uh, the video gamer population. What draws video gamers to these? Are there comorbid issues such as depression, anxiety, stuff along those lines? Is there something else going on that we're not uh, paying attention to? These are all the things that they're not incorporating into research, which is really, really bad. And it creates what we call a diagnosis house of cards. Now, with a house of cards, um, obviously, if you blow on it, it falls down. So, so far, when we came out in 2013 with the, uh, the DSM-5, with Internet Gaming Disorder, they put out these nine criteria, again, just taken from substance abuse criteria. And since 2013 to 2018, earlier this year, we've had over 80 different screeners for video game addiction created and none of them hold up to validity to being able to be reliable to be able to differentiate between what's highly engagement versus what's low engagement versus addiction they they can't do that because the criteria doesn't match what's actually going on and that's when we we kind of take point in, as a researcher to pay attention to the idea that if the criteria isn't matching what we're seeing then it's not the right criteria and that is where Mark, I kind of like am very cautious and hazardous of the of the current criteria that's coming out because I don't think it's the right criteria. I don't know what the right criteria is. We don't have the research to back this up as of now. I think that it's premature and it's what we would call putting the car before the horse. Does it seem to you at all like the same groups of people who misunderstand games maybe tried to use the violence argument for a long time. And when that didn't really find footing, they found this other argument of, 
oh well then it, then if it, it's not causing people to be violent then it, it's causing them to be addicted and does it do you, do you think it comes from like this mentality of like we just got to we don't understand video games so we got to take them down any any way we can i think that that would be a a interesting way of putting it i think that they're definitely if you look at the people who are in one camp and people who are now in this new camp we definitely see a lot of the same people there's no doubt about that and i think it's because they just don't understand video games i i do tr- truly believe that they are part of the older generation and our our research around that shows that they the older generation has a very negative view of video gaming um, or any sort of technology because mainly they don't understand it. And when you don't understand something, you tend to scapegoat it. And if you scapegoat it long enough, then it must be true. That's how all sorts of things happen. That's how, and this is obviously extreme comparisons. That's how like the Holocaust happened. That's how like other things have happened in this world. It's it's a moral panic issue in my opinion, and we really need to be a little bit more aware of it and see where it kind of takes us over overall because we've had these moral panic issues before. That was one time it was um, Tencent magazines in the in the smoking mm. store. Um, had, at another time it was pinball. At another time it was rock music, comic books, everything that is now considered to be very common culture. All these things once had a very strong moral panic and people were like, it's going to rot their brains. They're going to turn into these things. They're going to become these demon demonic uh people with uh playing D in their basements they're never going to learn how to function in real life and all this type of scapegoating occurs that whole thing really um is is coming to play right now and we're going to see it continue into play and even when the world health organization um, opened up a op- open up that diagnosis then within 12 hours we saw 12 um, just across the United Kingdom, 12 different uh, facilities open up uh, for treatment for video game addiction when the, we don't know really what the criteria is. We don't technically have it for another two years. We technically don't have the research, yet people are already trying to make money off of this diagnosis. And there's places here in the United States that do it as well. Now, what I heard from all of that is Dr. Bean confirms the Illuminati hates video games. It's yeah. conspiracy <laughs> to see that. <laughs> Um, Nicholas Cage is coming for now, us. Tony. Before we jump into our our topic for the day, there's there's one other thing I have to talk to you about on on your website. It says that you perform video game weddings. Tell me about this. I have to know what this is. What is a video game wedding, and how did how did you get started in doing this? <laughs> you really really went into the into the deep <laughs> stuff. All right, so I I am what you call uh, an official person officiate. Uh, for weddings, and I've married uh, a few people, and I personally love doing it because it's a fun, fun way to kind of bring in um, mythology and some really spiritual, really great, great, great stuff. And so, what I do is usually when people um, kind of come and talk to me about this type of stuff, they have a game that kind of connected them. Um, to give an example, Zelda Universe. Um, the people who run that actually are married. I didn't marry them. Um, and they, uh, got married to Legend of Zelda music. And so they had a lot of it into their, their wedding and everything. And so what we do is we interweave the mythology of the video game into the vows, into the way that we explain how these people met, into how they, they view each other. And we kind of incorporate the, the video game, 
um, concept and um, overall storyline into the the ceremony itself because it means so much to them. Now, Jer- Jared and I are both already married, but two other people. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> good, good clarification. Good clarification there, Jared. I, I mean, not to yeah, not to each other. <laughs> I don't think. Just want to make sure everyone could, was clear. It could it could happen. Sometimes my wife says that I'm married to Jared, but. <laughs> <laughs> we've known each other for a very long time <laughs> um at, at some point i might be interested in uh renewing my vows would, I, do you do those kinds of ceremonies i mean i'd have to talk i'd have to talk <laughs> courtney into it but <laughs> she would love that i'm sure i'm sure she would yeah <laughs> i i mentioned to her when i told her we were going to have you on the show I, I had just mentioned to her that you do these video game weddings and she just looked at me and said no <laughs> i mean if it, if it makes her feel any better the only thing i could get into video game into on my wedding myself was uh i got to walk down to uh zelda's lullaby uh down oh, cool. as i walked so that was as close as i was able to bring it in to my wife's credit she got for me a groom's cake which was a tradition i had not had not even heard of until we got married but she got me a uh, final fantasy 7 buster sword groom's cake so she did she did make the effort to incorporate it into our wedding. So I have to give her credit for that. <laughs> um, let's jump into our topic. Uh, we always start this out with a little bit of a history lesson. Jared, where did daily and weekly quests get their start in video games? During the early days of MMO, uh, Ultima Online came out in 1997, and it was designed by Richard Garreau. Is that how you say that? I've just been saying Garriott. I think Garriott? We, we've brought up Ultima games in the past, and I think we always say Garriott. It's Garriott. probably it's probably wrong, but no one's ever checked us on it. So, <laughs> guess what, Richard? Roll for initiative. Guess what, um, Richard? Your last name is now Garriott. Sorry. <laughs> it was kind of designed as like a pseudo social experiment. Its goal was to contradict the trope of the player being at the center of the universe and foster player interactions. It featured a power hour. So once per day, players would receive a bonus XP when you logged in for that hour. And it was applied to any activity that granted XP, such as completing quests. Uh, but players would often use it to hasten all the tedious tasks like fishing and crafting, I'm sure. It's not really a daily quest, but it was one of the first examples of kind of like a daily engagement, keeping people coming back on a regular basis. It was, yeah. It not, doesn't quite fit, I think, our current definition of it, but certainly seems to start painting the picture of where some of these modern ideas came from right and it's it's about getting people together right you know on a semi-regular basis and I, I think that's kind of like the spirit of this discussion for sure for sure now tony have you did you ever play ultima online not ultima online but i have played the ultima 3 i think is what we decided on uh the nes and i still own it behind me and let me tell you it is a pain in the butt to beat <laughs> jared we yeah. found one we found someone who's played an ultima game Oh, that's it only, right. yeah, we talk about this game all the time or the series and everyone's like, no, it only took us. It only took us 39 episodes, but we did it. We found I, one. I wasn't actually sure it existed <laughs> until now. I know. I, I thought they were like unicorns, just myths, just planting false memories. Uh, a couple years after Ultima Online, Asheron's Call came out in 1999 and it's considered the third MMORPG. But Asheron's Call featured a fantasy setting and the Quests and dungeons were repeatable, but they had countdown timers that applied to prevented players from aggressively looting the same items over and over again. They reset it usually like every 24 hours, uh, and people would would be on that basic 
gameplay loop trying to min max their their time and and resources gathered yeah i think i think typically today when people think of like a daily quest there's everyone knows the reset time for their specific game that they play Uh, i know in destiny it used to be at like two o'clock in the morning so you'd stay up until two o'clock so you could grind out all the dailies at 201 so again asheron's call not necessarily exactly what we're talking about it was you you couldn't do the same dungeon twice in a 24-hour span so then you'd end up with these people who had sort of their own self-imposed daily schedules for doing the, the dungeons animal crossing came out uh, in 2001 for the Nintendo 64 and GameCube. And it was one of the first games to have an internal clock. If you're not familiar with Animal Crossing, it's basically a resource management game. You're building a town. There's not a whole lot of plot, but you got to set your own goals and and kind of build up your your town. Um, Can't help but uh, notice you skipped the designers of Animal Crossing there, Jared. Hmm. If you want to know who did that, you can uh, look it up. Uh, it was designed by Katsuya Iguchi. And Sounds good to me. Hiyashi Nogami. Hisashi Nogami? Hisashi. Hisashi. Someone please, 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 if you're listening to this and you know how to pronounce these names, send us a Just send a us like phonetic... go back retroactively and just like kind of just do all of the names that I got wrong. <laughs> but the, the, the kind of unique thing that this was doing, especially for consoles, was using the, the, the console's internal clock to keep track of things in real time. So there are certain resources you could only get at certain times. I know that if you logged out for a long time and, and then came back in, it's like, oh, I haven't seen you in so many days. And there are people who have turned their GameCubes back on after you know, 10, 15 years, and it's, it's like some ridiculous number. Thousands of days that they've been yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, and th- so originally Animal Crossing was made for the Nintendo 64. It was only ever released on the N64 in Japan. I, and like, I'm I don't not, remember it for the N64. I'm not entirely sure how it handled the time span in that game because the N64 did not have a built-in clock, but there were ways... Um, that developers could put onto cartridges the way, like a, a method for detecting how much time had passed since the cartridge was last used. Sure, I mean, so those I cartridges had batteries in them, so there's probably some part of the the board in there. There, there must have been. So I don't know. I, I'm, I couldn't find information on this if the Nintendo 64 version actually had any sort of, you know, took advantage of those time span mechanics that the gamecube did because the gamecube did have a built-in clock um tony did you did you have any experience with animal crossing did you ever play it i played it uh, a little bit for the gamecube uh when i was in college <laughs> but my uh my roommate was not the the most what do you call it uh hygienic um and so i didn't get a lot of time to play it, and uh, that's why i switched into a uh, dance dance revolution you just described like 99% of all people's college experiences. Yeah, and it was great. I actually start, uh, created the club at my college for Dance Dance Revolution and ran it for four years. And we got the college to pay for video game consoles and the actual pads. And we ended up with about 500 people across, at the end of it, across uh, six different classrooms playing Dance Dance Revolution nice. on Thursday nights. <laughs> How stinky do you have to be to get your roommate to like go form a club to get away from you <laughs> enough where you can taste it in your butthole. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Doctor is you, you don't want to. 
this is this is descriptive. It's the uh, it's the sixth sense we never knew we didn't want. <laughs> uh, well, Doc, let me, let me throw this to you first. When we when we're talking about daily and weekly quests, what what does that mean to you? Like, how do you define a daily and a weekly quest in your mind? In my mind, is uh, obviously something that you complete every day for more reputation or an item or something like that where you have to physically log on and it's the same quest that's repeatable you've done it before that's the only way to unlock it that you've so you kind of know what you have to do that's why it's called the daily because the npcs are like here make me this loaf of bread again it was delicious except this time put rosemary in it or something along those lines and i will give you this satchel versus the the weekly quests are usually in my experience a little bit more geared towards the higher end raids or stuff that usually takes a lot longer to to defeat or, or defeat the end boss um so you can shoot and it has like really high powered um items or really long sought out uh, items that people really really want so you're only allowed to do it once a week and i, I think you touched on something important which is that they the loaf of bread i know the, <laughs> well now i want a loaf of bread with rosemary thank you for that <laughs> but the th- the thing I think you touched on was really good was that it's a quest that is repeated, right? Like there's some sort of like there's some sort of formula to it, whether it's a, a quest that existed in the story and you just get to do it over and over again, or it's some kind of easily craftable idea, right? Like go kill ten rats, and then tomorrow I'll have you go kill ten boars, and then the next day I'll have you go kill ten alligators. You know, like. There's some sort of like easy to recognize mechanism to it. I I think that those are good examples of the kinds of quests that typically are used for daily and weekly quests. Well, a lot of them give that reputation too, which is one of the main reasons that a lot of us do them is because once we need that reputation in order to to, uh, get a certain item or something like that, but generally my experience of of working with gamers and myself is once I hit that reputation, I don't do that quest anymore. That's just a bunch of bullcrap. Why would I do that again? I'm done. Jared, how about you? When when you think about daily and weekly quests, is there anything that we left out of the definition? What what springs into your mind when you're when you're thinking about those quests? Well, we we touched on a little bit already, but I think that the aspect of player engagement and keeping people coming back is a important part of that definition. Especially, you know, when we started talking about Animal Crossing, I thought to myself, well, that was most that was just a single player game. So they did that purely for the fun and, and the novelty of it, I guess. But, you know, these days it's it's almost to me seems more like a business decision in that it keeps your player base active and thus probably spending more money on cosmetics or, or microtransactions of some kind. No, and and you are dead on the money, Jared. The reason I included Animal Crossing in our show notes was because it was the earliest single player example of a game I could find that required players to engage with it on a frequent basis. Now, as we get a little bit more into this conversation, I think that that distinction will be important because I think a lot of times when we're talking about daily quests, usually it's in an online game. And the reason that the developer is interested in having you check in with the game every single day is to keep things like player counts up. But in a game like Animal Crossing or other single player games that take advantage of daily rewards, uh, which there's honestly not a whole lot of out there, it was done for an artistic purpose. It was done because they wanted that to be uh, a part of the 
experience of playing that game and it wasn't necessarily like the developer got something special from you turning that game on every single day uh, so i think that i think that that is a good distinction you made there in bringing up animal crossing tony what was your first experience with a daily or a weekly quest in a video game that would very easily be world of warcraft in college that's mine yeah. too how how uh was that yours as well, Jared? Uh, yeah, I mean, either that or Final Fantasy XI. I, th- I think I got into Final Fantasy XI before I got into Warcraft. I did too, but I don't remember dailies or weeklies in that one. So for the sake of argument, we'll just say it's World of Warcraft for all of us. Sure. Same same era. I was there <laughs> for that. <laughs> T- Tony, what was, what was the experience like with dailies and weekly quests in World of Warcraft? Did you have a positive reaction to it, a negative reaction? Did you engage with the systems? What was, what was your experience with it in that first game? My first experience overall with it would very likely have been like, oh, cool, I know how to do this. I'm going to do this again. I wonder what it's going to do. Is there going to give me something? Is it not going to give me something? And then as I learned more about the mechanics and making sure that I bring in this item to that person or get ready for this type of stuff, because this is before World of Warcraft started imposing where you had to have a quest in your in your log before you were able to start getting the items, so you were able to farm these items throughout the entire world for a period of time. So you just go be like, oh, here we go. I already know I have these items. I'm going to push it in. So for me, it was just like, oh, it's here. I know it's going to be there. Um, so I'm going to just collect the items and get there. And then I started noticing I was getting that reputation um, for the, the, the class and certain things along those lines. And so I started doing them to just get the reputation up. But again, once once I got reputation and I didn't need it, I just stopped doing those ones. But Blizzard always has a, a good, I'm saying a good mechanic, but I, when I say the word good, I don't necessarily mean that it's good versus evil. In a sense, it's just more of a, it's a, it's a good way of keeping you um, in the game because you can only do so many dailies per day. And once you do those ones, they only give you so much rep. And so what, it takes a while to gear up that type of thing so once you finish this set um, of dailies you can then move on to this other one so when you were engaging with world of warcraft in those daily quests was it something that kept you engaged was it something you look for you looked forward to every day were you, you know were you logging on to do those dailies or how did you typically do them was it just something you did in passing when you noticed it so for me when i was playing this game in undergrad i also worked as a uh, in my school, they had you had to use your your ID badge to get into your dorm, and it would unlock the doors and all that stuff. And so I would be one of the the people at the front scanning uh, badges to make sure people would get in and people belong there and everything like that. So I would work on two hour shifts, and I'd have nothing to do because it'd be like two two to four a.m. in the morning, which sucked. And so I'd use it for homework time if I had it, or I'd play World of Warcraft because they had a sweet little Ethernet port up there. As you know, we we find ways to get faster internet. <laughs> um, so we uh, we definitely played. I played on that capacity, and so I would just do it to burn time. But as as I left that environment, and I would probably play a little bit more outside of the the college level. I I found myself doing them just more for the sake of doing them rather than any sort of gratification. And how about you, Jared? How did how did you engage with the dailies in World of Warcraft? I did not. Me too. <laughs> I, I, I played the game very casually. You know, I, I grouped up and did the dungeons. I, I don't think I ever did a raid. I was never part Me of it. Me too. Guild. Yeah. So I just kind of, I kind of played the game's main content. And I think 
the first time I played vanilla and I came back for Burning Crusades and Lich King, but with with big breaks in between because I was just once I was done with the content, I was done, so I I didn't really worry about it. For me, the the dailies in World of Warcraft were my first introduction with that kind of game design. And when I first encountered it, it was something exactly like Tony said. It was like, hey, make me 10 loaves of bread and then turn them into me. And the idea seemed so stupid to me. Like, why would someone do this every <laughs> single day? It, it made no sense to me. But I, well, I would hear people talk about it. Oh, I log, you know, had to log on and get my dailies done. I'm like, you logged on and you baked ten loaves of bread for this dude. Like, I had people that- cancel plans on me to do stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> it weirded me out. I had never seen anything like that. I'd never seen a game ask that of me before. So I, I didn't engage with those systems in World of Warcraft. It wasn't until much later when I got into some other games that we'll talk about that the idea of dailies felt more palatable, and I. I don't know exactly why I felt there was like a, a change. Maybe it was just the way the games were structured or the, the rewards that came along with them. But yeah, that first experience of, of encountering a, a, the idea of a daily quest, just it seemed so off-putting to me originally. As a side note, around the time that Animal Crossing was popular, Seaman came out in, in 2000 for the Dreamcast in North America. And that game also used an internal clock to progress things in real time and that game was all about raising this disgusting half fish half man thing kind of like a tamagotchi except it was voiced by leonard nimoy um okay we'll have to investigate that further later because that sounds like an amazing game (laughs) Uh, you 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 don't remember this game no i I can't say that i i can't say that i do okay well you'll have to look it up because it's batshit insane (laughs) i I will be Googling it shortly after we stop recording. Doc, what games are there right now that you think do a a good job of incorporating daily quests? I think that I think first of all, we need to kind of like define what would be a good incorporation. Sure. Let's start there. And I think this is this. This is where World of Warcraft, I think, failed. And I have many disagreements with the way World of Warcraft is designed at this point, because I think they lost their soul and their deep talent trees, as soon as they took those away at the end of Wrath, the whole game just lost all luster for me, specifically. But those ones didn't feel like it, you were into that that immersive stance, that, that ability to see, like, oh, here's this quest, I can just go and do this, I'm going to visit this place over and over again for a purpose. And I think that's where Blizzard has found a, a better version of it, is actually in, like, Heroes of the Storm. And the reason is, is because those, those ones are just there. I don't have to pick them up. I can see what they are. I can choose to do them or not. Yeah, I get the 250 gold, stuff like that. But who cares what I, what I do with, with it otherwise? Most of them are easy. Most of them, you just do them passively. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the games are probably going to be going is a little bit more of a passive daily system because it just makes it a lot easier to, to stand, to do, and you get rewards for playing the game rather than being forced to go down this very specific role in order to get this item or something like that. So I think the thing for me that would define if a game has good dailies is that the game itself has to be fun. And I, I feel like that almost goes without saying, but I feel like in this particular discussion, it needs to be said. Because for, for me, I think a game that... that incorporates daily quests well is a game like destiny 
which invites you to play with your friends. And it has really I good. You said the game had to be fun. Get out of here, Jared. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're still here, Jared. Gosh, no. <laughs> I'm oh, notorious okay. for dumping on Destiny, even though it's probably one of my favorite games of all time. But the the act of like aiming down the sights and shooting an alien in that game, just that very fundamental aspect of that game felt good. So I think the idea of returning to that world, you know, having the opportunity, having the excuse to go back into that world at regular intervals was made more palatable by the fact that just what you were doing felt good. And then you layer on top of that the other things that typically accompany daily quests, you know, things like your rewards and your progress and stuff like that. But but for me, I think that one thing needs to be there in order for the the daily to then be or feel effective. Jared, how about you? What what games do you think are are good at incorporating daily quests? See, I, I'm not going to be a real positive voice in this discussion because I've never engaged in that mechanic. I just don't find it. In, I don't find it fun. And in most instances, I feel like it's just padding out the grind for gear or XP. And that's usually, in my opinion, as a result of kind of a lack of engaging main story content. Now, so what's not fun? Is it the fact that it's repetitive? Is that what it is for you? Okay, so I guess take Destiny, for example. I mean, you, you cite that as a fun example, but I don't, to what end are you are you logging in and doing these dailies? Are you getting light levels? Are you getting more gear? And what is that for? To to get into the like harder raids? It's a genuine question. I'm not trying to be. Uh, yeah. So the in Destiny, the the dailies were um, the dailies and weekly quests would reward you with what they called powerful gear. At least in Destiny Two, this is what it's called powerful gear. So it was like a guaranteed drop of a piece of gear higher than your current level. Or if you're and at the you see, or if you're at the light level, it would drop it at the Destiny cap. and Destiny and to I guess a lesser extent Destiny Two were notorious when they came out for having kind of a lack of content. Uh, and and I feel like that was sort of a easy way for them to keep people engaged, but it wasn't to me, it didn't seem like substantive engagement. I I, I was not interested in in continuing that grind because I didn't see what the light at the end of the tunnel looked like. Uh so was it not playing with friends i mean because because to me that's what destiny was destiny was like you hop Perhaps. online and you hang out and then like the dailies were sort of this excuse to do you know an excuse to do something so it you know like it's what differentiated it from like you know laying down on your tummy in your bed in high school and talking to someone on the phone right like there's also this other thing you're doing you're, you're talking with your friends but you're also shooting aliens at the same time I mean, one of the other things, the way that I play games typically is that I get my time with them and then I'm pretty done. You know, I don't typically come back to games. I've I've gone back to Overwatch a few times because, you know, that's purely a multiplayer experience and they release new heroes or, um, you know, they have new seasonal events and I'll come back for that. That's kind of fun. But just to log in to do to check something off a box to just get more XP uh, is not something that's ever really appealed to me. And I, I can understand why it would, but I, I just tend to move on. There's so many games out there to play. I, I don't like sticking with one game. So were there any other games that stick out in your mind as having positive examples? As I, I feel like we're hopefully coming closer to a definition of what good mechanics are. I think I 
really think that a good mechanic is one that doesn't pull the person out of the immersive experience. The, so the whole reason that we play video games is because of that immersive experience, the one where we feel like we're one with the game and that we're, we're really in tune with the mechanics and everything like that. And if there's, if there's passive uh, dailies that are happening automatically, you're like, oh, great, I'm really enjoying this game and I'm getting this, this extra, um, extra help on this other area. This is, this is good. I feel good about this. Now, some behavior psychologists would be like, oh, you're getting reinforced on, on this other area, and look at this uh, operant conditioning, <laughs> blah, this, blah, blah, blah. And I would be like, That's, this is just a game. It's not reinforcing you to go in and do the, play the game because it's passive. It's not active. When, when we have a little bit more of an active role in those ones, that's when we start seeing a little bit more of the possibility of the caution or stuff like that. So if what makes the mechanics good is a little bit difficult to nail down, what are there any games that do it poorly so that maybe we could still kind of hone in on, on the, the what differentiates the two good mechanics from bad mechanics? I would say World of Warcraft does it really crappily um, now um, from what I've seen is that they it, you really have to like fly to all these places. You have to do all these things. You have to go here. You have to go there in order to get these dailies versus, um, I'll use another Blizzard one, um, Hearthstone really utilizes it in a, in a passive stance um, where you can play as a character and you're like, hey, I want to play as this one and it fits this criteria. Great. Two birds with one stone. One of the things that you had kind of touched on was the idea of immersion in a game. And I think that this is maybe where uh, a lot of daily quests kind of fall short for me is beyond the idea that they're just simply repetitive is also the idea that it doesn't make sense that you would be doing certain things over and over again, right? Like it doesn't make sense in, in destiny. Why I have to go kill. What were they called? The people that killed Cade, the barons. Like, why do I have to go kill this baron again? This doesn't make like logically it doesn't make sense. I've already killed them in the main story, but now there's this weekly quest where I have to go do it again. Um, does that does that bump for you when that happens in games? For for me specifically, if the I, I think it depends on the reward. So let's say we'll use uh, World of Warcraft again. Some of the raids, um, like you could get a firehawk on there. It's like a zero point one percent chance of doing that. So I'll put in the effort to go in and do that one once a week. And I get more pissy that it doesn't drop than anything uh, because it's a rare drop. But um, if if I don't have to do it, if the reward's not worth it, I don't, I wouldn't touch it just because it's, it's not, it's not worth my time when I could be doing something else. I feel more enjoyable in the game or something like that. Now, how about you, Jared? Is this, is this something that you think about when you're, engaging with or not engaging with daily quest is, is part of it that it just doesn't make sense yeah i suppose so you know i think about a game like monster hunter world that didn't really hold my attention for too long but i i did enjoy their i don't know their events what do they call them in that like they had timed events right there were seasonal events yeah we Sort of, but like almost like on every other week, I felt like there was something new that you could get a mm, unique they did. piece of equipment or, or armor yes. weapon. They did and do I, a very I, good job of trickling out a lot of the content over time. 
And I think that's fun. You know, it it, it sucks for people like who have busy schedules because you're going to mm-hmm. be like, oh, I really want to do this, but I'm going to miss out because I don't have, you know, the the time between then and now to, to complete that. But, you, you know, they did come in and rotate those rewards through again. But I thought that was cool because those rewards were reflected to other players. And you could be like, oh, yeah, this guy got that from that quest that it was live four weeks ago. And that, that's, that's kind of a unique feeling, I think, is when the, the reward is up front like that. That one is kind of unique because it's sort of this midway point between weekly quests and seasonal events, the way that, that Monster Hunter did it. And now the execution of that was that you had to do that thing like six times to get all the resources you needed to True. actually get the reward. So True. I wouldn't say it's like the best example, but I, it did come, I did come closest to like almost participating in those, but I kind of fell off. But going back to one of the things I was talking about with, with sort of that, that narrative conflict that I have with dailies in a lot of, a lot of games, like wh- why would I be doing this thing over and over again to its credit? One of the things that destiny almost from the very beginning, like vanilla destiny one seemed interested in was explaining partly why you were doing some of these things. So um, for those not familiar in destiny one, the very first raid was the vault of glass and you were fighting the Vex, which are these like time traveling robots. And you could only do that raid once per week on each of your characters to get gear. Every time you did it after that, you didn't get any rewards, but they were conscious of this idea that like, you know, why are they killing the same boss over and over again? But it's because the Vex exist in like multiple timelines that you can never like truly kill this boss that every time you kill him, you're just taking one out of the multiple timelines that he exists on. And to me that, that was really cool because they had put the effort into explaining that. And that continues into destiny Two, like the first raid in destiny Two you're fighting callous. And when you get to the very end and you finally defeat him, it turns out he's just a robot. And then you go down into the bowels of the ship and there's like just lines and lines of callous robots. And again, it's this, it's Bungie being conscious of the idea. Like we need to explain why it's possible for them to go through this quest over and over again. So they're giving you these reasons of like, Oh, he actually just made multiple copies of himself and he's actually testing you every week to make sure that you're strong enough to face the next challenge that comes. And to me, that was really cool, but it does allow you to do it. It like recontextualizes the daily and weekly quests as you're going through them. Characters actually have new dialogue every week. Now for someone like me who I don't find the story of destiny that engaging to begin with like those minor changes in dialogue didn't really attract me too much but it to me it was cool that Bungie is trying to explain through their design why you as the protagonist are doing these things over and over again I thought I thought that was pretty cool And, and considering I dump on Destiny so much on this podcast I just wanted to make sure that I gave them some credit where credit was due but Doc it it seems like game companies more and more these days are interested in having things like daily and weekly quests included in them. Why do you think that is like, why are we seeing that more and more from online games? I think it's because it's becoming more of the norm that people think that this is how a video game is created and people can use it to increase their content to 
to say, oh, we're while we're building up this patch, we are going to let you do this, and we're going to just put in this extra weapon or this extra thing to be able to pass off time, if that makes sense. So, like, if, if we give an idea, as most games, as we, we're starting to see as expansions, is expansions used to take about one to two years to come out. And then people would be like, all right, a new expansion, this is great. We're starting to see them come out every six months now because people are blowing through this content because um, it's either too easy or or are not able to uh, keep it, keep the attention of these types of things uh, with the gamers. So I think that that's one of the reasons why people just utilize this this concept, this game mechanic, to just make sure people are still playing the game and keep them entertained for a period of time. Now, was this idea of dailies and weekly quests, do you, do you see this as like a natural progression? Or was this born out of, how to phrase this, like was, was this an, an effort? Was this something that was worked towards? Because we talked about this when we had Jamie Madigan on the show. Video game companies, especially in like the last five to ten years, have been interested in how psychology works with video games. And while I don't necessarily think that this is malicious, but I think that one of the things that, that game companies are interested in is like, how do we keep people engaged with our games? So was this something that was artificially created or is this something that came about naturally? If we want to look at it from a, like a developmental or, or just like an evolutionary perspective, this is kind of the way that games are, have gone. And the main thing of where what we're seeing is that with the natural evolution of these games, people are going to see what's working in some games and what's not working in others and get rid of the things that aren't working and keep the things that are working. Now, dailies have been shown to keep people engaged, and so those are usually utilized in a lot of different ways. Now, it doesn't have to be necessarily seen as a daily. Let's If we do Clash of Clans or something like that, you have to log in every so often to like re-up your factories mm-hmm. or get your people or do something like that. And that that's a different way of looking at it from a, a engagement perspective. But I think that's kind of one of the, the big ways that they are trying to incorporate this a little bit more heavily. So to, I think it's just a natural progression, and I'm sure at some point that it will change or get included on something else as well. I think that progression is the key word. I mean, if you think back to my gaming heydays, which was like Counter-Strike 1.6, people played those games for thousands of hours, and that game didn't have progression to it. It was just you're getting better, mm. or, and you're having fun and logging on to your servers that your friends are playing on. So those types of games didn't need incentive to keep bringing people back. But now that everything has some kind of RPG element in it and some kind of progression that you're working towards, especially now that games are... Uh, software as a service that I think is tied to why we see daily and weeklies and everything now is to keep people coming back because it's just a different mm-hmm. type of gameplay experience altogether. Well, and you had mentioned Overwatch, which is a game that doesn't have progress. That to me is like the old Counter Strike days where your skill you cosmetics, though you know you can only get certain cosmetics during certain times of the of the year. That's true. I mean. Yes, but they they don't really have any gameplay implications outside sure. of just your you know your avatar. But Overwatch has incorporated dailies into the way that it operates its game. Now, I think in Overwatch's case, it's specifically to help flesh out the playlists in the arcades, which is where the dailies live in that game. 
but I'm I'm doing my what best. I, know. I, I haven't engaged with those. Like, what what do you get from completing dailies? Do you get you get more, more loot, loot boxes? boxes? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's still and, a form of progression, I would say. Okay, I because to me, and I, and I'm 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 trying my hardest not to paint this as like an as a negative thing, but I think it's like what we talked about in the seasonal events where I feel like a lot of these developers have included a lot of these engagement systems things like loot boxes and seasonal events and daily and weekly quests and i just i wonder if we hit a point where there's just you know there's like so many tricks being employed see i can't even do i can't even go a sentence without using like loaded language for this but if there's if there's enough of these mechanisms in place that it does actually start to create issues that may relate to things like addiction I'm curious to hear what you think about that, Tony. Like, do you see this as one system independent or do you see it as part of this like larger system or this, you know, part of a a larger mechanism to keep people constantly engaged in maybe healthy or unhealthy ways? It's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword on some level. Like loot boxes are great to keep people engaged in, in trying to get new content and everything like that. But there, there is an inherent risk, and they can be attributed to, to gambling. I don't know how much it can be attributed because the research is really still fairly new on that, and it's not fully developed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And people, as with everything, just like with the addiction stuff, are making broad assumptions and jumping from conclusion to conclusion without really taking certain facts into consideration and being like, you know what, this correlational stata study doesn't really kind of show anything. It's just correlation, and, and any researcher worth their salt um, would say correlation does not equate to causation. Therefore, we can't really infer past what we can, what we kind of have here. However, you're going to have plenty of other researchers who be like, look at this correlation. This thing has a, a 0.42, which makes it a moderate correlation, and this means that it really has uh, an important variable here. But then if you start doing the logistical regression and stuff like that, that 0.42 goes down to a... Uh, explaining uh, like maybe 16% of the entire variance, which means you still have 84% of something going on, which means that's not the only thing. But then people be like, look, this whole thing, this one correlation explains everything. This is this is what we have to focus on. And that's, that's a problem with social science is they grasp onto one thing, they overblow it, and they take it uh, out of control in a lot of levels. So I think that loot boxes, we still need more research on them. They have gambling mechanics. Um, in them on a very, we're going to say superficial level, because you, if you're paying money for it, yeah, you're, you're gambling with some, some money and some, some other stuff. But if you're, because you don't never know what you're going to get, but you might get other things in there. And some video games have the, the loot boxes where if you get the same item twice, you get to like upgrade the item that you have there. So there's always like a, a bonus to it. So there's always some sort of form of upgrade. Versus like Hearthstone has the the idea if you get the same card you can just put it in the dust and and get rid of it in that capacity. And and I'm kind of playing a little bit of of devil's advocate here because because I think a lot of these systems can be used responsibly. But do you do you see any video games out there that are potentially crossing that line into predatory with their with the way that they're using um, engagement systems to keep people in their games? It's a, a good question. I don't know if we can say one game over another has it. 
there will definitely be some people who will call Hearthstone addictive things. Um, anything that really has a loot box is is kind of thrust into the the gaming the gaming uh, disorder category right now because they they feel like oh if this is that uh, aspect of the game that's really keeping people enthralled then it's got to be addictive in nature and I'm like well I must be addicted to pizza then because uh, <laughs> hell man. You put a piece of cheese pizza in front of me from like Domino's, you know, the big pan pizza or Pizza Hut. I'm going to eat the shit out of that <laughs> real bad, real fast. Um, so it's, to me, it's like very correlational baits. I think that there's, again, a lot of research that has to go into this. One game isn't better over another one. It's it's something more, I think, that just kind of having better boundaries and understanding what does it mean to spend money on on a virtual item that you can't, there's not a tangible fact uh, or a, a feel to it. Is, is really kind of where our, our society is going on some level. But also, what's a better way of putting it? Uh, it's where we're going in a, in a society, but it's also very frightening to those who don't understand it. And I think that's what it comes back to, is we don't really have an ethos of a mm-hmm. gamer, which leads a lot of people to think that, like, oh, crap, society's going down the shit tubes, man. All right, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get your, your input on that. I think we'd be remiss to not mention Fortnite in this discussion yeah we totally would Fortnite is such a unique thing to happen to the games industry it's a free-to-play game at least the part that everyone's playing and they only sell cosmetics but they have changed that map I want to say almost every week since that game has come out and they have added new features and and new events have been happening they've had promotional tie-ins and and you know you can spend money to unlock cosmetics, but they had people coming back to that game even without that stuff. So what are they doing differently that we're seeing that we haven't seen before as, as far as keeping players engaged? Like how have they been so successful in keeping people coming back? So I, I, I'll quickly mention one thing that Fortnite does that I, I see as sort of an iteration on the way that dailies and weeklies work. Like you said, obviously they, they change the map uh, periodically But the other thing that they have is this uh, battle pass, which is every so often you can you basically buy the ability to complete objectives to unlock cosmetics. And and that's interesting to me because I, I, I see that as a way to, in essence, monetize. Um, engagement like. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 found a way to to get you to pay to do the dailies in a video game. But it doesn't feel gross. It doesn't. I mean, again, I I was kind of playing up my like <laughs> my distaste for these things. I, I again, I think a lot of these things can be done responsibly and for the most part are fairly harmless. But yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't feel wrong to me, at least. And I'm not a Fortnite expert. Like I, I don't play the game. I, I do keep up with it because it's almost impossible not to. It's just all over the place. But you know, like for example, as at the time of this recording, this week's challenge is to find a piano on the map. It's like a it's like a giant piano, and you have to play sheet music in a certain order to complete the challenge. And that's like super cool because you're playing a battle royale game, but you're also having to do it. You know, one of your challenges mm. is to play music, and that is a very cool way to change up the gameplay. That I think people are really interested in a positive way, at least from my perspective. Oh yeah. Now, Doc, do you have experience with with Fortnite or the way that it asks players to be engaged regularly? 
Yeah, I have uh, experience with it. Um, a minimal, again, because Fortnite's... I, I'm not an action-type player game, so my, my type of game is more of a role-playing, strategy, space exploration-type game. So that, like, that's, that's my jam. And so Fortnite, I've played it, I've seen it, I have people who play it, and they play it for the, the competition um, aspect. And mainly, and in, in that thing is, can I do it before I get killed? Is can I play that piano mm-hmm. before I get killed? Is it? A, it's a challenge, and it's a hard challenge, but it's not overly hard. So it's right on that that threshold of being able to call it a, an impossible feat versus being able to really hone in on how how can I make this happen while surviving and possibly winning the entire battle royale. And to me, that seems like a really good way to do this type of engagement, recurring engagement, because, you know, it's not the World of Warcraft, go do 10 of these, except this time put Rosemary in it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it is it is a challenge. And I think that, uh, to me, that's more rewarding, even, <laughs> you know, I say all this and I don't play Fortnite. There's a lot of things I don't like about the game. But to me, that seems like, at least in this discussion, like a really cool way to, to handle that. It is. And it, it's cool because it invites you to engage in with the game in a way that is not just trying to win right because not everyone has the skill to be number one in that game but it gives you things that you can accomplish in that game so it keeps those people who might otherwise be discouraged from failure uh it keeps them continuing to play the game because there are things that they can accomplish within those systems and some of it's even more accessible than that you know they change the map in a significant way like right now a quarter of the map has snow covering it and that's super cool and all you mm -hmm. do is log in and play and that's you get to see something a little different now jared i have a question for you as someone who does not engage with daily quest or weekly quest do you ever feel uh like left out or do you feel like it's some kind of like a a punishment on your play style that you don't engage with games that way. Cause I know, you know, we tried to get you into destiny and I know you bounced off of it pretty quickly. Did you feel like you were missing out on the fun that we were having with destiny because we were playing it every day to accomplish those goals? I, I missed out on, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, was that why the main reason you guys were logging in every night was to do the weeklies like in once the, in the dailies? Uh, for us, for me specifically, yeah, once once I had completed the story stuff, the only reason I continued to play Destiny was to do those uh, the daily and weekly stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I love the raids in Destiny 1. Vault of Glass might be my favorite like gaming moment. I don't know if you could call it a moment, but it might it might be my favorite like video game component I've I've ever done in any game. I, you know, I did feel like I was missing out in, on the social aspect of just hanging out and playing it. And, you know, I suppose I could have jumped into the chat and just hung out and talked with you guys. But it just, to me, seemed like an empty experience. Uh, I felt like I could be playing other games. Like, I didn't, I don't have a lot of time to game in the day. So I'd rather just do, you know, play other experiences. Um, and I remember the last, the last moment that I played Destiny and it's when I actually finally grouped up with you and some of our friends and you were like walking me through Vault of Glass. Now, and I, uh, I didn't have the same experience or, or feeling that you, that you did. I know. When you described Vault of Glass, I, uh, I felt frustrated and um, disengaged from that whole experience. But I was quite underleveled, so I, you know, 
wasn't attached to it. Yeah, it, there there is certainly a magic to being like the one of the first people into a raid versus being shepherded through the raid. I was just I was just curious if if that was a, a sensation you got peer pressure, you know, for from from not engaging with those <laughs> daily systems. Now, maybe a little. Now, Tony, um, do you think that these systems can maybe have the opposite effect that they're intended to have? For me, playing Destiny, we would go- log on on Tuesday, which was the weekly reset, and within three hours, we would have banged out all the you know the the weekly nightfalls and the weekly raids and done all the daily stuff, and then that was it. Like we were done. Do, do you do you think that that's like a common experience that people have, or or is that is that possible, or am, am I an anomaly in that way? That after you finish the raid, you're like, all right, I've, I've been successful. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I, it was honest. Sometimes it would be like, whew, don't have to play Destiny for another week. No, that's kind of like the way that I used to do uh, uh, World of Warcraft uh, until I, I realized I was like, I'm not deriving any pleasure out of this. This is just more me grinding stuff because I'm waiting for the next expansion. Why don't I go play a different game that I'm going to enjoy a little bit more? I think that um, that's an insight issue, and I think that with, as more and more people get involved in that and build that insight, and that's kind of what we what we try to do in therapy um, as well, is to build an insight. Are you really still enjoying this, or are you just doing it for the sake of doing it? And if people are like, I'm just doing it, I'm like, well, let's switch games. What's a different one? Try something different. And if they still feel a drive back to it, then we talk about that. Once a game starts to feel like work, like I'm out. I, I just, it's not, it's not fun for me. When we're talking about things like daily and weekly quests, how can the industry improve with the way that it that implements them, with the way that it keeps players engaged with its systems? What do you think that they, that developers can do better moving forward? I think that the, the better thing of what they can do is there's a lot of different answers to this one. I, my big thing, and this is where I work clinically is the immersive experience of the game. If someone is, is in a game and they play it for a long period of time, there's an immersive quality, and we need to understand why that immersive quality is there. Are they missing something out outside of life? Are they getting some sort of different satisfaction from it that they might be missing in their other lives? Or is there is there something else kind of going on, like using it as a coping mechanism? So for me specifically, the kind of the idea of being able to make it more immersive so it doesn't feel like a chore. Because once it feels like a chore, it's no longer fun. We don't play games to, to do chores. If I wanted to do chores, I've got plenty to do around the house or plenty to do for my, for my business or writing more books or articles and stuff like that. So if I wanted a chore, that's the <laughs> route I would go. Um, that's my, my kind of main critique. But I think also the, is making some of the dailies a, a little bit harder. I mean, when they're, they're so easy... That, you know, you can just blow through 25 dailies in a matter of half hour to an hour. What's the point of having them? There's no real point. And it kind of uh, doesn't really feel like you're accomplishing anything really, really good. Well, I, I think to kind of piggyback off of that, I think that the way dailies are put into games now is it's more of like something to do to get a reward. And the act of doing it itself is not necessarily rewarding and and i think that this is maybe where developers are stuck like i could i could see this as sort of like a rock and a hard place thing where game makers who make 
persistent online games need people engaged with those games every single day in order to keep those worlds populated. But they, I think it's just impossible for any video game company to make bespoke content for every single day of the week. And I think that this is the, the sticking point for why these things, I, I would say ultimately at the end of the day, feel kind of unrewarding. So this is where I see something like the incorporation of procedural generation advances in those areas having a having maybe a really good impact is if you can create an algorithm that can generate engaging content it's not just about the reward at the end of it but it's about the it can be about a rewarding experience as you're working towards the reward at the end of it but I feel like every time I bring up procedural generation at the end of an episode, I always come across sounding like a crazy person. <laughs> it's it's still in its infancy, right? People don't really know where that's headed yet because it's it's such a such a young technology, I such just, a young I, way idea of you know making a game. It's I just don't see I just don't see place. any other way it can go though. Like we, if unless because, you have because, unless you're a huge company, right? And you can dedicate resources to that. Even and, and then, developers working around the clock to to do new and and fun things that are but, big in scale. But and, and with how little and I guess this will be the part of the show we saved it towards the very end, but the disclaimer, I know nothing <laughs> about game design. Just do I, this, it's easy. But I feel like if that was the case, we would have seen some of these big companies like Bungie already doing that. The fact that it hasn't been done, I think, speaks to the fact that it's very resource intensive to do to the point that it's prohibitive. It's it's just not realistic. Well, is is Epic not doing that right now with Fortnite? Maybe. And it, it, this it's goes a back different to, take on it. This really, goes back but... to our definition of daily and weekly quests. Sure, but I feel like it's the evolution of that. And it is. It is this and brand I... new you know thing that is Fortnite. But to me, that seems like the end game is that we want to have engaging content all the time but we cannot realistically create it so to me i just don't i don't see another way i think we just got to train skynet to make video games for us <laughs> seems legit how about you jared what, what do you think the game developers can do better when they're creating daily or weekly content for video games i really like what you said about right now how it's Doing a daily or weekly is about getting the reward, but the act isn't rewarding. I feel like there must be a way, and and it's gonna, you know, it's not something you could just add to any game. It's 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 gonna have to tie back into how fun the game is to play in the beginning, but some way to make the act rewarding and fun. And I, that's you know, as much as I can say without <laughs> without coming up with a whole new game idea. But um, you know, the the idea that it's that the act is fun, I feel like is. Uh, a concept that I don't see enough of. I'm just going to put you in the procedural generation camp with me. That works. <laughs> <laughs> if you, the listener, have any questions or comments about daily or weekly quests, you can always send them to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to hear what people think about daily and weekly quests because every time one of these episodes come out about player engagement, I, I think people have some very strong thoughts. So I, I, I would love to for people to write in and, and let us know what you think about them. Jared, what do you say we uh, we read some listener feedback? So in response to our article that we posted about 2 Millie suing Epic uh, with about the emote uh, dance that they put out. Uh, yeah, what, had, ti what timing on that, dude? 
That, like, yeah. Can we just talk about that for a second? We, we, we try to we, make these evergreen, but they often end up being pretty relevant kind of quickly. Well, yeah, we we talked about it. And in that episode, I, I foretold that someone would sue Epic. And then between the time that we recorded it and when the episode went live, someone sued Epic over the dances. It was it was uh, I, my mind was blown. So Ellie wrote to us, uh, she says, uh, hi, as the article mentions, choreography is in the gray area when it comes to copyright. I do think that Epic was shady with using recognizable dances, just renaming them. This benefits Epic monetarily while treading on the artist and the work that it took to get where he is today. I seriously doubt it would have cost them that much to contact the artists and request permission. Since the two milli dance is not currently copyrighted, I doubt he will win the suit, but you never know. Frankly, I think that video game companies should have to pay for the choreography just like other artists have to. If he wins, it could have a positive effect on how choreographers are compensated in a lot of industries like gaming, music videos, etc. At least it would set a precedent. Hope this helps. Thanks, Ellie. Yeah, thank you, Ellie. And it, it's worth saying Ellie is a friend of ours and she is a dancer. So she has she actually has a horse in this race. So I I know she's interested in seeing how this all plays out, just like you and I are, Jared. Um, yeah. What What are your feelings, Doc, on game companies using references pop to pop culture, specifically to not not just pop culture, but pop culture that can be traced to a direct source? Like, what What are your feelings on that? I think that it's kind of like a what do you call it? A again, one of those catch twenty twos. Whereas it's if it's not copyrighted, it's it's open source. Therefore, it's not anyone else. It, like if Nintendo owns it, then yeah, you're you're taking someone else's stuff. If a music industry owns a, something like that and you're using it, yeah, you are you're stealing um, that type of stuff. However, there are plenty of instances, uh, even in the music industry, um, that people will like a tune so much, but they'll go and change one note in it. So let's say if it goes A, A, B, B, C, C, they'll go A, A, B, B, D, D. And it technically is a brand new thing, and it doesn't fit that criteria. Yet if someone without a, a really well-tuned ear won't be able to actually know that the, the note has changed enough, if there's enough of a background noise or something else going on, and so people are able to, to use that type of, of uh, uh, music in, in whatever they're tr- trying to do. Pop culture is pop culture. It doesn't mean like when I'm writing the Legend of Zelda book, we're using a pop culture reference. Yes, Nintendo owns it. Yes, Nintendo probably will never do these types of books because they're working on video games. Um, yes, the cover, if you guys have ever seen the cover, it's we're, we're definitely treading a very <laughs> fine line um, on that one. But at the at the same time, it's it's technically not endorsed by Nintendo. It's unofficial. It's something about using psychology. We can use the image as long as the image doesn't portray too closely to the uh, the actual game itself. And yeah, we can use symbols, but people can't own symbols in, in a sense. They can own the character. They can own other parts of it. But pop culture type stuff, unless you have a copyright, I think you're just SOL. But there's a difference between, I think, what you're doing in your book, right? Is like you're taking something that Nintendo has created and you're, you're using that as a lens to kind of view something else. Like you're adding your own, your own image into there. You're adding your own message into it. Where I see the problem with this is that in a lot of these cases, I don't think that, that 
Epic has added anything of their own, really. Like they've just they've literally just taken the choreography of someone else's design and put it into their game. And it's not a it's not a commentary on anything. It's just like, look, we took this thing that you're familiar with and put it here so that you can pay us, you know, to be able to dance like this person. I the other thing is, I think that most people would agree that the artists deserve I mean, at the very least, credit, right? Uh, do the three of us at least agree on that? Because that's my stance: is that at the very least, the artists deserve credit for creating these dances. Yeah, but but credit is different than royalties, and I think that that's kind of where where those those suings and those litigations are coming into play is because they're going for royalties rather than. Yeah, credit. I'm just I'm just trying to establish like a baseline. Do we at least all agree that like they they that these artists should at least get the credit for it? On principle, yes, but then to me, that just seems like now they're going to have to pay. I don't know where do you, where do you stand on that, Doc? Do you think do you think that they at least deserve credit? I, it's a good question. I don't know. I think it'd have to be done on a case by case basis because uh, let's say like Stan Lee gets credit for a lot of the creation of uh, a lot of comic book characters, um, and that that world wouldn't exist without him. So to to use that as a pop culture reference. Yeah, that would be a, a something where this this would legitimately stand. But for a dance move, who who says that one person can can own that dance move? This note or this series of notes, how can someone say that that's my notes? You can't use my notes in that aspect. You can you could say it could be adapted from it. Sure, that's giving credit, but at the same time, it's not theirs. Yeah, I, I just don't think that anyone can own a, a pop culture reference or say that's mine without running into me like, how is it yours? Um, you need to get the, the video game lawyer in here. I know. He's a, he's a personality I see on Reddit a lot, and uh, maybe he would have some, some ideas about that. Hmm. I think it's sticky. I think it's a real, it's a real tough area. It is. I, whatever happens with this two million thing, I think will actually have pretty far-reaching consequences. Oh, that is no doubt. And it's, it's interesting because I... I thought this was see. I thought this would, was a little more at least black and white because I figured if you if you presented this to the average person, I think the average person would have said like, "Yeah, that person created that dance. They should get some sort of compensation." Now, how you legally define that? Like, I guess we could get into the like you know the nitty gritty on that. But I think like most most people would would say like, "Yeah, they they should get at least get credit or some kind of compensation for it." I mean, um, did the the creators of the Macarena get royalties every time the drunks on the morning news shows did it? I don't know. Like, probably not. Um, but maybe. I mean, you know, there they had to actually play the audio for the song, so maybe they were getting some compensation there. I don't know, man. I thought the, I thought this would be. I thought I would have your support on this. I guess I'm, maybe <laughs> I'm. Because to me, to me, it feels so black and white. White in this world is black and white. Well, I know, and that's where I'm. That's why I'm trying to make it as sort of like general as possible in establishing kind of like a, a baseline for for this discussion but it, it's 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 complicated i guess i just i just think like the way i see it is that someone who creates a dance right like to millie he he whether he put a lot of work into creating that dance or a little bit he put work into creating it and for someone like epic to then have that dance in their game and they're now making probably far more money off of it than two Millie did when he created it to me just on a gut level feels wrong. And I would like to see that corrected in this world. And I, I hope that, that 
I hope that this turns out good for two milli. Uh, not that I want to see Epic punished, but I, I want to see people who, who work and have a passion. And even though that passion might be hard to legally define, I think that they should be compensated for the, the efforts that they put in. I don't know. That's just me. I think that's a reasonable stance to take. Wait, did I win you over, Jared? I think so. Oh, I, okay. We all agree on that. I will take that, <laughs> and we will move on. <laughs> so he just you. plays outro music. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean you're Cue right. the outro music. Ellie, thank you so much for, for writing to us and sharing your thoughts on that. She's a dancer. She's, she, has, she has a horse in this race, too, so it was, it was cool to her, of her to reach out to us in that way. That's it for our listener feedback. If you have thoughts of your own on any of our past topics, send us an email. Podcast at gbfeature.com is where you can reach us. And that's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Anthony Bean. Doc, thank you so much for being here, man. Where can people find your work? How can they keep up with you? Well, they can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, VideoGameDoc. The website is AnthonyMBean.com, I think. Um, haven't been there in a while because... <laughs> It just gets updated, and there's a fun link in my uh, Chrome thing, so I just press that, and it takes me to it. Um, and um, we're always on Facebook, having having fun and dicking around, and always at the PAXs, um, usually giving presentations and hanging out with other gamers and researchers. You got something coming up? Yeah, we're going to be at PAX South in January um, on four different panels, one on using video games and autism, another one on the psychology of Legend of Zelda, which is actually going to be streamed on uh, PAX's uh, Twitch channel, which is awesome. great. In the other two, I think one's a moral high ground character uh, one, and then another one is uh, immersive experiences found within gaming and how do we relate to our avatars. Very cool. Busy man. Oh, yeah. Always something going on. Uh, and I'm going to throw this out there as well. Definitely check out Dr. Anthony's books, Working with Video Gamers and Games and Therapy, and also check out The Psychology of Zelda, Linking Our World to the Legend of Zelda series. And those are available, both of them on Amazon, correct? They, they're both on Amazon, and I think the, the, the Zelda one comes out in February, but if people come down to uh, PAX South, I might have a couple copies to, to give out, because that's, that's what we do. Are you signing yeah. copies? Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. All right, go check out the books and follow Dr. Anthony on Twitter. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks. I'm all about conspiracy theories on here. You know who started? You know who started it? Mary Kish. I blame her and she her did. like her robots. She had a lot of theories. Making us play. What, what was it? The robots make us play Rocket League for their amusement. Yeah, that's that's like the backstory of Rocket League. It's like a dystopia. Damn you, Mary! See now I can't I can't turn it off.